Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. In September of 1972, the Olympic motto of faster, higher, stronger became an irrelevance as the world's greatest sporting event was ravaged by violence and bloodshed. In this episode, I discuss the Munich massacre, why it happened, how it happened, and whether it could have been prevented. The Olympics is supposed to be an apolitical event, but with Munich chosen as the host city, the 20th Olympiad was inevitably going to exist under a cloud of turbulent politics and history. 36 years earlier, Germany had hosted the Games in Berlin. Hitler viewed it as an opportunity to showcase the dominance of the so-called Aryan people. Like a modern Caesar, he stands on the balcony to receive the salutes of the athletes of 50 nations. Athletes, including African-American Jesse Owens, made a mockery of Hitler's ideology with success in track and field. But that event very nearly didn't happen, as pressure grew to strip the Nazi regime of the events on account of their abhorrent treatment of the Jews. Among those defending Germany's right to hold the games was American Olympic Committee member, Avery Brundage. He said politics should have no impact on the game, while perversely also claiming the protests were due to a conspiracy organized by Jews and communists. Four decades later, Brundage was the president of the International Olympic Committee and the figurehead of the event being held, this time in Munich, rather than Berlin. The stadium used for what had become known as Hitler's Games was now housing British troops, who'd been in Berlin since the Allied powers divided the city into four sectors in 1945. The city of Berlin itself had been divided by a virtually impenetrable iron curtain. From the east, athletes from the totalitarian German Democratic Republic would be crossing the border to attend an Olympics for just the second time. Just four years earlier, the East Germans and their allies had justified the crushing of the Prague Rising by falsely claiming it was sparked by a West German invasion of Czechoslovakia. Beyond Europe, the Western nations were involved in a proxy war with the Soviets and Chinese that enveloped Korea and later Vietnam. While in the Middle East, the Western-backed Israel had been involved in a war with the neighboring Arab states just a few years before the Olympics. Essentially, it was a time of conflict, espionage, counter-espionage, and terrorism. West Germany itself was not exempt from the violence. In 1970, in the city of Munich, a bus carrying passengers to an Israeli El Al flight came under attack from Palestinian terrorists. One person was killed, and 23 were injured. The Palestinians had links to another group that presented a more immediate threat to the host nation, the Red Army Faction. Formed in 1968, 
the anti-imperialist Marxist group that West Germany was a fascist state where Nazis had been rehabilitated and absolved of their crimes. They sought to bring about a new regime closer to the one in neighbouring East Germany. Their tactics included bomb attacks and assassinations. Just a few months before the Olympics, the Red Army faction planted bombs at a US base in Frankfurt that killed one soldier and left 13 others injured. And it was against this backdrop that the Olympic planners asked German psychologist Georg Sieber to conduct a risk assessment for the games. He devised 26 possible scenarios involving possible terror threats. One of his forecasts involved Palestinian terrorists infiltrating the lightly guarded athlete quarters, taking Israeli athletes hostage, killing some, and demanding a prisoner swap for the release of the others. Despite requesting this report, the organizers were horrified by it and quickly dismissed it. Any heavy security measures involving the military would evoke unpleasant memories of the militaristic 1936 games. Moreover, the post-war constitution forbade the West German army from being involved in domestic matters. Security could only be handled by the police, but even there, the organizers were concerned with the optics. They were keen to portray an image of West Germany as an open and liberal country to contrast favorably with the Stasi-dominated police state next door. It wasn't politically palatable to have a heavy police presence. Instead, the games would be largely protected by local plainclothes officers. Weeks before the game started, the head of the Israeli delegation, Shmuel Laukin, contacted the organizers and requested additional security for the Israeli team. The German authorities provided assurances of additional measures, though it's unclear if any steps were actually taken. On the 14th of August, the risk of an attack moved from realm of theory into actuality, when the West German embassy in Beirut received information that a Palestinian group planned an attack at the games. This information was immediately shared with the foreign office in Bonn before being passed on to the authorities in Munich. But not only was no action seemingly taken, this fact only came to light in 2012 through the investigative report done by the German newspaper, Der Spiegel. This was after 40 years of suppression of this information. And consequently, a delegation of Israeli athletes and officials arrived in Munich and were housed on the ground floor of a building on the edge of the Olympic Village and separated from the outside world by a simple chain-link fence. By this time, two Palestinian militants, Lutif Afif and Yusuf Nazar, had gained temporary employment in the Olympic Village. They'd crept into the Olympic Village by posing as Brazilian tourists and by charming one of the guards. While there, an unsuspecting woman had given them access to the apartments where the Israeli team would stay. This gave them crucial information about entrances, exits, and the number of athletes staying in each room. The two men soon became familiar faces around the Olympic Village, even playing chess on the street and bartering for fruit from a Uruguayan official. Nazar and Afif had prepared for their attack by training in Libya, which at the time was controlled by Colonel Gaddafi. Both men had previously been engaged in operations against Israel, but in 1970, King Hussein expelled Palestinian militants from Jordan after they'd created a quasi-state within his nation. 
another conflict followed, and on the 16th of September, King Hussein declared military rule. In response, Palestinian militants formed a group called Black September, and members of this group assassinated Jordanian Prime Minister Wasfi Tal in 1971, and it was this same group that was behind the Munich plot. Oblivious to the danger, 7,000 athletes from 121 countries began competing at the Olympics on the 26th of August, 1972. Among the competitors was Jewish-American swimmer Mark Spitz. He was seeking redemption after a disappointing showing in Mexico four years prior, but in a stunning series of swims, he set seven world records and won seven gold medals. Spitz is really going for it. 156, 57, 58, 59, 62, it's a new world record! An accomplishment that wasn't surpassed by a swimmer until Michael Phelps won eight golds 36 years later. But by the 4th of September, the swimming program was done, but there was still a week's worth of events to be completed. That evening, the Israeli Olympians left the compound and went to a theater to watch the musical Fiddler on the Roof. The story details the trials and tribulations of a Jewish family enduring pogroms in Russia. Its star was the Russian-born Shmuel Rodensky. The athlete shared a meal with the actor before returning to the Olympic Village. The same evening, some North American actors snuck out for a night on the town. As had become the norm, they avoided security and scaled the chain-link fence to return to their accommodation. But while doing so, they encountered eight other men, seemingly athletes from another country, and they helped these men scale the fence. As the unwitting athletes returned to their dorms, the men they had assisted used previously stolen keys to enter the building housing the Israelis. Far from being athletes, they were members of Black September, and rather than holding athletic wear in their holdouts, they held guns and grenades. The building they entered contained 24 apartments. Representatives from Uruguay, one of whom had given food to the terrorists previously, were housed in the same building. The Israeli delegation was sleeping in apartments one through six. The Palestinians gathered outside the first room, while Jamal al-Gashi, just 18 years old and raised in a Lebanese refugee camp, was instructed to remain on guard at the entrance to the building. Yosef Gutfreund, a 40-year-old Romanian-born wrestling coach, was awoken by the disturbance as the Palestinians attempted to enter the room. He left his bedroom and saw masked men entering the communal living area. The near 300-pound Gutfreund yelled a warning to his sweetmates before doing his best to force the door shut. His roommate, Tuvia Sokolovsky, heard the cries and ran into the living area where he saw armed men trying to force their way past Gutfreund. Sokolovsky screamed for his other countrymen to wake up before returning to his bedroom and trying to escape through the window, but it was jammed. As the seven Palestinians eventually overpowered Gutfreund, Sokolovsky managed to smash the window before jumping to freedom. It was a narrow escape. As he darted for cover behind a concrete flower pot, gunmen who had observed his escape fired shots in his direction, but Sokolovsky was safe. Surprisingly, the gunshots did not cause alarm in the neighboring apartments, as people assumed they were celebratory fireworks going off connected to the event. Back inside apartment one, the militants rounded up the Israelis, but wrestling coach Mosh Weinberg grabbed a fruit knife from his bedstand 
and attempted to stab the group's leader Afif. He tore his shirt but didn't manage to make contact with his skin. In retaliation, another Palestinian shot Weinberg directly in the face. The bullet went through Weinberg's cheek, leaving him bloodied and in pain, but still alive. With the exception of Weinberg, all of the other Israelis were tied up and kept under guard in their apartment, while Weinberg was forced at gunpoint to lead the Palestinians to rooms housing his other colleagues. The neighboring suite, Suite 2, housed Israeli fencers and shooters, but Weinberg lied to his captors and claimed the room contained athletes from another nation. Instead, he led the men to apartment 3, where his wrestling colleagues slept. It's assumed he hoped his teammates would have heard the commotion and would be ready to help him overpower the terrorists. Unfortunately, the men in apartment 3 were asleep and were quickly overpowered. By this time, the residents of apartment 2 had woken up and they spotted an armed Palestinian on the balcony. Having initially resolved to fight, they quickly realized they stood little chance against the armed men. One of the men was Shaw Ladani. Born in Yugoslavia, he'd been to Germany once before, when in 1944, along with his family, he was sent to the concentration camp at Belsen. Whilst there, he was sent into the gas chamber, only to receive an unlikely reprieve when a group of American Jews negotiated a ransom with the Nazis to free 2,000 captives. This group included Ladani and his parents. On this night in Germany, he experienced another miraculous escape. He crept out of the window and made his way to another area of the Olympic Village. Jumping from a balcony, he made his way to the room of the US track coach Bill Bowerman, while his teammate, Yehuda Weisenstein, also fled and awoke a Bahamian athlete by knocking on his window. The athlete was stunned to hear the Israelis were being attacked. A phone call from the Bahamian delegation was the first news the Munich organizers heard about the attack. The terrorists, meanwhile, were frog-marching their captors from the apartment three down a stairwell when the injured Weinberg attacked one of the guards, knocking him unconscious. In the confusion that followed, wrestler Gab Sabari made a break for it. He successfully dodged fire from the Palestinians as he raced down a staircase into an underground parking lot. From there, he scaled the perimeter fence and made his way into the press center where he explained his ordeal to a stunned journalist. Whatever security precautions the Germans had laid on had proven woefully inadequate, as despite gunshots and violence, it was only the escape of the three Israeli athletes that alerted the world to the attack. When Sabari made his break for freedom, the Palestinians shot Weinberg dead. Another execution was to follow, as Yosef Romano, who ironically was born in Libya, the nation where the terrorists had trained, overpowered another guard and took his gun before also being shot dead. As dawn broke on the 5th of September, the world learnt of the carnage and the Palestinians were left with nine hostages. The attack had played out precisely how Georg Stieber had predicted, including the Palestinians' demands for a hostage swap, entailing the release of 200 prisoners in Israel as well as the release of two members of the Red Army faction who'd recently been jailed in West Germany. The Israeli government were not in favour of such a deal, fearing it would simply encourage similar attacks on their nation. It's since been claimed that the Israeli government offered to fly in special forces and to free the hostages, but this claim has been denied in Munich. 
But the spectre of Jews being killed in Germany just decades after the Holocaust was a nightmare scenario for the West German regime and their notion of the friendly games. The East German delegation were housed directly opposite the Israeli apartments and some of their group had vivid memories of World War II. That dark past came flooding back when they saw the Palestinians dump the body of Weinberg onto the street to illustrate the level of their resolve. The West Germans tried to buy their way out of the crisis by offering the Palestinians an unlimited bounty in return for the safe release of the hostages. This proposal was rejected out of hand. The Palestinians demanded a flight to take them to Egypt from where the hostages would be released if their demands were met. The German police and Arab League negotiators played along with the negotiations even though the Egyptian government had already rejected any involvement in the case. But these talks were just a ruse to buy time, as a force of West German border guards were assembled and tasked with raiding the building. The rescue operation quickly turned into a farce, as the hostage takers saw the police preparing the ambush on numerous TV stations that were broadcasting live from outside the building. The police were forced to make an embarrassing retreat when the Palestinians declared they'd kill two more Israelis unless they backed off. The negotiations continued and the German officials demanded proof of life. They were allowed to approach the apartment and speak with two Romanian-born Israelis, Andre Spitzer and Kehat Shor, through an open window. These discussions ended abruptly when Spitzer was assaulted with the butt end of an AK-47 by one of his guards. The mayor of the Olympic Village was allowed inside the apartment and he reported that the hostages showed signs of physical abuse. While there, he counted five hostage takers and this information was passed on to the police force. The Germans eventually agreed to transport the Palestinians and their hostages to a nearby Air Force base from where they would be flown to Cairo. But in order to get transportation to the base, the men first had to pass through 200 meters of an underground parking lot and this gave the Germans another opportunity to try and establish an ambush. Snipers were strategically placed throughout the parking lot with the intention that they could take out the Palestinians and free the Israelis. But having foiled one plot, the Palestinians didn't trust the German authorities and sent one of their men down into the parking lot to make sure no one was hidden there. He quickly saw the snipers and returned inside. Back inside, the Palestinians issued a new demand for a bus to arrive at the front of the apartment complex and for that to take them to the waiting helicopter. At 10pm local time, the bus arrived and the Palestinians hurriedly rushed their hostages into the vehicle. But the airport transfer was another ruse. At the airport, a Boeing 747 sat on the tarmac. It was full of policemen whose intention was to overpower the two Palestinians who'd been given permission to go on board and inspect that it wasn't a trap. Unfortunately, these policemen panicked without consulting their superiors and left the plane. Since these police officers were dressed as the flight crew, it meant that when the two Palestinian men went on board, they found a completely deserted airplane and it quickly became obvious that this was simply another trap. They ran back to the helicopter where the hostages were still being held. German snipers had been placed around the airport, but crucially, they believed there were only five hostage takers. 
So assuming the two men on the plane had been overpowered by the German police, they were anticipating they only had to shoot three remaining terrorists. But in fact there were eight. And there was another problem. None of the snipers were actually trained sharpshooters. They were just chosen because they were men who happened to go hunting on the weekend. Moreover, it was late at night, dark, and they didn't have night vision equipment. One of the snipers took a shot at Afif, the leader of the group, as he ran back to the helicopter. But a shot was a poor one, and he just injured him, hitting him in the leg. A kind of free-for-all quickly followed. The other snipers, who hadn't been given specific instructions beforehand on when to act, were suddenly told to open fire, and they did, killing two of the Palestinians on the helicopter who were standing guard over its German pilots. The pilots managed to escape, but the Israeli hostages could not, as they were all tied up inside. The remaining Palestinians jumped out of the helicopter and took cover behind it, exchanging fire with the Germans. One West German police officer in the airport's control tower was killed during this gunfight. The shooting quickly settled into a stalemate, and the Germans called for reinforcements, but they became stuck in traffic. Just after midnight, fearing the worst, Afif, the leader of the Palestinians, decided to execute the remaining Israeli hostages. One of the Israelis survived the shooting, but he was sadly killed due to fumes after Ifa detonated a grenade in the helicopter before running for safety himself. He was quickly killed by German policemen, as was another of his colleagues. One of the Palestinians managed to escape from the scene, though he was later tracked down and killed during a gunfight with German officers. Three of the terrorists, two of whom were injured, including 18-year-old Jamal Al-Ghashi, were captured by the police. Subsequent investigations have considered the fact that some of the Israeli hostages on the aircraft may have been killed in friendly fire. However, forensic reports indicate that each of the men was shot at least four times by machine gun fire, indicating they were probably killed execution style and not by errant rounds from the German authorities. The bodies of the dead Palestinians were repatriated to Libya, where they were given full ceremonies as heroes by Gaddafi. The three who were captured were jailed, but not for long. Just a month later, the German flight was hijacked by Palestinian terrorists, who demanded the release of the three men. West Germany obliged. Did you expect to be free so soon? Uh, of course, because I trust my friends and uh, I was very sure that I will uh, go free one day. You were very confident that it would be within two months? Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, I uh, think that maybe in seven days, in uh, two months, in three months, I don't care. But really, I was uh, very trust that my friend will send me free to our, to our country. But this incident has led to scrutiny and conspiracy theories. And some people have suggested that the whole hostage taking of the Lufthansa flight was a ruse just to enable the Germans to free themselves of the Palestinians in exchange for assurances that there would be no further attacks on the German mainland. Jamal Al-Ghashi later made comments that alluded to this being true. Meanwhile, German investigative reporters in 2013 unearthed documents from 11 days before the Lufthansa hostage taking that indicated a plan was in place to have the Palestinians sent abroad rather than put on trial. Whatever the truth, 
Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir condemned the West Germans for negotiating with terrorists. It was assumed by many, including the Munich organizers, that the games would be cancelled. But American IOC chairman Avery Brundage, the man who had defended the Berlin Olympics of 1936, insisted that the games must go on. It was only under intense public pressure that he finally agreed to a 36-hour pause, during which a memorial service was held for the victims. However, he caused even more offence by delivering a rambling speech at the event in which he bemoaned the impact of political events, including the expulsion of Rhodesia from the Games and the impact that this and the hostage crisis had had on the sport. Regardless of his wishes, some athletes decided to leave. Jewish American Mark Spitz had completed his events, but chose to leave early as there were fears that he could be targeted if the hostage crisis proved to be just a prelude to further attacks. The Egyptian delegation, whose president had refused to condemn the attack or to lower his nation's flag to half-mast during the memorial service, left the Olympics early, citing fear of reprisals. Abu Daoud, the man Israeli authorities believed planned the attacks, was arrested in France in 1977. The German newspaper Der Spiegel have since claimed that the French authorities offered to send him to Germany to stand trial, only for the government there to reject the offer for fear of ending an agreement to recognize the PLO in return for assurances the group would not conduct activities in Germany. Dawood eventually found refuge in Syria, where he died in 2010. The fate of Jamal al-Ghashi the youngest member of Black September remains unclear. Although like Dowd, he is known to have spent some time in Syria. In 1999, he gave an unapologetic interview about the attack. Since then, he's disappeared from public view. The Israeli secret service Mossad claimed to have assassinated his surviving comrades, Mohammed Safadi and Adnan al-Ghashi in retaliation for the Munich attack. But those reports like so much about this case have been questioned. It's variously been claimed that the men died of other causes and even that Safadi is still alive today.
Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.